All right. Wasn't that a beautiful time? Uh, isn't that an amazing thing the Lord has given us? Communion, this thing that we can do together, to fellowship together, to bring ourselves together and to remember what, what Jesus has done for us. And um, I have just been particularly blessed through the service today because we didn't talk a lot about the songs. I didn't talk to Haley about the songs to choose, and I didn't talk to Reese about what to say. And yet all these things are sort of um, supporting what we're going to talk about, which is grace. Um, this amazing thing we call, we call grace. And um, if you're a believer today, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this thing called grace. Um, are you thankful? <laughs> are you thankful for grace? You really should be. And, and Reese picked on that, didn't he? That there should be just a, such a great uh, spirit of thankfulness in our hearts for what Christ has done for us. And this is where Paul is going to go with what he's been talking about in 1 Timothy. So if you'd like to turn in 1 Timothy, we're in chapter 1 still. Um, we'll be coming to the end of that shortly. But in chapter 1, last week at least, we looked at Paul's explanation of the proper use of the law. You might remember that. Um, and the reason he had to do that is because the, the, the false teachers that were in Ephesus were, were sort of using elements of the law in their teaching, and what they were teaching people was that strict adherence to the law possibly might bring you divine favor, might bring you um, salvation, but that is not true because none of us can perfectly obey the law. And we looked, we looked at the law, we looked at the Ten Commandments, last week. These are God's standards of righteousness, and no one can obey those standards perfectly. And Paul said, interestingly, that that law, it's good if one uses it lawfully, meaning for the purpose for which it was given. It was given not for the righteous. It was given not for people who were already saved, who had already experienced God's grace. It was given for the lawless, uh, for the rebellious. It was given to sinners. And it was given to sinners to expose their actions as sinful. We wouldn't know what sin was until the law came and said, hey, that is a sin. It exposes sin. It exposes then our natural rebellious hearts to rebel against God when he says, no, you can't have that. No, you shouldn't do that. Our hearts naturally rebel against that. And as we experience that and see that as that becomes true to us, then sinners stand condemned before God as guilty, deserving death. And yet Paul says that this law is good. <laughs> well, it's good. It can be called good because it brings us out of that station of death and it brings us to Christ. That's what it's meant to do. How many beautiful testimonies have you heard from the mouths of people that you know? who were the most sinful, wretched men and women, wicked lifestyles living um, just completely for themselves, and yet they came to faith in Christ, and they're completely new people. How can you explain that? Well, it's grace, and it's a marvelous thing. It's a wonderful thing. And I want you to look at what we looked at last week and just in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Um, it was a list Paul gave us in verses 9 and 10 of of those for whom the law was given. In verse 9, he says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, 
for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for persecutors. If there's anything other, other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. Well, you read that list and that just sounds like a hopeless bunch. But we all fall into these categories. We're the hopeless bunch. What changed? We became recipients of God's grace. Amazing. And Paul certainly looked at himself the same way. Hopeless were it not for God's grace. And as we look at this passage, I want to talk about grace for a moment. Paul actually only mentions the word grace once in this passage, yet as you will clearly see, it's all about grace. He actually mentions the word mercy more. But mercy and grace go together. They, they work together. We just look at our verse for the week, Titus 3, 5. It's not according to righteous things which we have done, but according to his mercy which with, with which he saved us. Well, mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting something we do deserve. That's mercy. Mercy does something. It spares us misery. It spares us punishment that should come our way because of sin. And when we don't experience that, you then have experienced mercy. Grace, however, is different. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. And we receive, when we come to salvation, forgiveness of sins and actual removal of guilt. Mercy does not do that. That's something mercy can't do. But they go together. And after talking so much about the law and who it was for, Paul can't help to think about his own situation, who he was. Paul never goes, he does, he does say he's an apostle. He uses apostolic authority when he talks because he's talking to churches, but he never, he never comes with this air of superiority. Oh, don't you know, I'm an apostle and all you are much lower than me. Paul always considered himself as a sinner. He was never above uh, that understanding that the law brought about redemption ultimately for him. And here he's overwhelmed by God's grace, and he shares with us his own gratitude for God's grace. In Ephesus, the teachers were presenting a false gospel, but the proper use of the law, when it brings conviction of sin, it shows us a need for grace. And Paul and you and I have experienced that. And so here Paul gives us some elements of grace which should lead to a state of gratitude. Gratitude for grace is what I've titled today. Gratitude for grace. And we're going to look at verses 12 to 17. Follow along as I read the passage and we'll begin. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. 
Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And as we um, delve into this amazing section of scripture where Paul praises you for grace in his life, Lord, may our hearts, Lord, come to a place of extreme thankfulness and gratitude as well. May you open up our hearts for all that is in here, such a rich uh, passage, so full of uh, truth, and I pray that your spirit would be with us and guide us into truth, that we might rightly apply what we learned today for our lives and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look here first at elements of grace, which is, if you're an outline person, the first point, elements of grace that Paul is going to, to, to reveal to us today. And taking it back to verse 12, look at it again. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. He begins with, at the right place, thanksgiving. Literally in the Greek, it's grateful am I, grateful, thankful am I for Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says, who has enabled me, which that really struck me when I read it. I would have thought that after speaking about the law and the law being made for sinners, but also according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, that Paul then would have said, oh, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who saved me. But that's not what he says. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. What is he talking about here? Well, this word enabled, indunamao, is to render strong, to be inwardly strengthened. It's a strengthening that comes from deep within, not your own inner strength. This is not Paul saying, I just sort of pulled my faith bootstraps uh, up. This is thanks to Jesus who enabled him. And so first and foremost, he is going to talk about enabling grace. Enabling grace. Enabling grace is not something we can create ourselves. Paul used this word enabled most famously in a verse I know you are all very familiar with, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's enables. It's strengthening but he can do everything through who? Christ. It's Christ who strengthens him. It speaks of an inner strengthening of soul and an inner strengthening of purpose. And very interestingly, Paul uses this word in relation to Abraham. And I think it gives us a helpful understanding of what kind of strength he is talking about. And it's Romans chapter 4. So if you'll turn to Romans 4, we'll come back to 1 Timothy, but I just, I want you to see this because it's really interesting. In Romans chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 13 here. We don't have time to look at the whole, uh, the whole thing, um, but I'll take you to the middle and kind of ex- explain that this is about Abraham and a promise has been made to Abraham that he is going to be the father of many nations, but it's made to him when he's quite old, and his wife is quite old, and she's, she has a barren womb. And this is what it says in verse 13 about that promise. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That promise wouldn't come about, it wouldn't be accomplished, accomplished uh, having anything to do with the law. 
It would come about through the righteousness of faith. That's what he's talking about. And so Abraham, um, did, did he, how did he react to this announcement when, when it initially happened? When God took him outside and said, look at the stars of the sky, Abraham, that's how many descendants you will have. Well, verse 19, if you skip ahead, tells us, and not being made weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was, here it is, strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. The evidence from human history and the age of men and women and from his own 100-year-old body and from the barren womb of his wife was that what God was promising was the impossible. That's the evidence that was before him. God, how are you going to accomplish this? How could I be the father of even one child, much less the father of generations, many nations? But we're told here that he did not waver at God's promise through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith. Just like Paul, Abraham's faith in God was strengthened, not by his own willpower or his own amazing faith, but it was strengthened by God, which is why it says, giving glory to God. He was strengthened in faith, and he didn't go, oh, Thank you, God, for my amazing faith. I had it in me all along. No, he gives glory to God because what he saw gave him a very different message. There's just no way this is going to happen. He was strengthened in his faith. And because his faith was strengthened, he became fully convinced. What God promised, no problem. He's able to perform it, no problem. And therefore, it was counted to him for righteousness. Paul is quoting directly from Genesis 15, 6 there. It says this, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, this is very interesting, because Abraham's faith was strengthened by God, because God had chosen Abraham for a very particular purpose, didn't he? And Paul recognizes the same thing with himself. He says, going back to our passage in 1 Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me strengthen me. For what purpose was Paul strengthened? Look what it says. Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now here we're starting to get an idea of what Paul is, is saying. The last thing he said about the gospel in verse 11 was that it was committed to my trust. That gospel, that precious message that we all have, it was entrusted to him. But the reason for Christ entrusting Paul with the gospel is now coming to light. It's because Christ counted or considered Paul faithful. He counted him faithful. He counted him trustworthy. That's the idea there. This, this idea blew Paul's mind because in his mind, of all the people, he was considered trustworthy? Christ saw something in him and said, oh, I think he's the trustworthy one I want. No, it's something he constantly marveled at. He never understood why. In 1 Corinthians 7, 25, he said, Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made me trustworthy. 
I, 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 don't, I can't explain it. It was just, it was God's mercy. Paul just knew that it had to be a work of the Lord. The Lord in his mercy has made me trustworthy, he says there. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 2, where he says this, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So what is he doing? What is Christ doing? Running all over the world trying to find all the faithful people here? No, Paul was found faithful by Christ. Christ deemed him faithful, counted him faithful, and had put him into the ministry. Ministry there is diakonia or diakonia. It's service. It's where we get our word deacons from. Paul was given this service ministry, and it was the ministry of the gospel entrusted to him. Why? Because he was enabled. He was strengthened. And, and, and for some reason, Christ counted me faithful. And he just, he put me into the ministry. This constantly blew his mind. Colossians 1.25, he speaks of it again, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me uh, for you to fulfill the word of God. I became a minister because I was given a stewardship from him. He's thankful that Christ would strengthen him, deem him faithful for this ministry. Why? Isn't Paul amazing? Isn't this, this, this big hero Paul? No, he was a sinner. And that's what he tells us here. This is why it blew his mind. Look at verse 13. Although <laughs> I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Now do you see it? I I just have to thank Christ Jesus because he, he, he strengthened me, he counted me faithful, and he put me into the ministry. But you know who I was? I'm a blasphemer. Do you remember last week we looked at the table of the commandments? The first four table uh, uh, commandments are the first table. They have to do with our relationship to God. How's Paul doing on that? As a blasphemer. That's one who speaks evil of God. Well, he blew it there. In Acts 26... Verses 10 to 11, Paul talked about the kind of man that he was. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many, all, uh, many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know, Paul never shied away about talking about who he really was. He says, let me tell you about the kind of man I, I was. I, I would take people, I would shut them up in prison. I would put them to death. I would even compel them, force them by torture to blaspheme God. He himself was the blasphemer. He also violated the second table of commandments, which has to do with how we deal with others because he calls himself a persecutor and an insolent man, which means violent aggressor. And boy, was he ever. Look at how he describes himself in Acts 22, verse 4 to 5. I persecuted this way. So the way was what they called Christians, that early group of Christians. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders from whom I also receive letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there 
to Jerusalem to be punished. I, 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 this man, I traveled all over the place to find people who belonged to the way because I wanted to persecute them, to bring them in chains, to prison them. A few verses later, in verses 19 to 20, he says, So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. You actually get a glimpse of that in, in Acts 8. They're stoning Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And there is, there is um, Saul at that time. He's not yet Paul. They're holding the clothes of those who are stoning him to death. And later he talks about it. Yeah, I imprisoned them. I beat them. In fact, I was by the side of the first martyr. I wanted him dead. He was a violent aggressor. He was a persecutor of the people. And if you persecute the people who follow Jesus, who are you really persecuting? Jesus. And Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. And in that testimony here in Acts chapter 9, look at it says, Then Saul, because he was Saul at that time, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, it doesn't say that. Why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus said, well, who, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. You're persecuting me. You persecute God's people. You persecute Christ. Do you understand why Paul thought he just couldn't believe that Christ would choose him? He enabled me. He counted me faithful, the one who persecuted Christ. Two other times he recounts his conversion in Acts. And both of those times he shares that phrase from Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Of all the people on the planet to be counted faithful, Paul felt that he was the least qualified because he persecuted Christ himself. But he goes on to say this in, in verse 13. Look at this. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This is very interesting. Paul isn't saying that acting ignorantly, ignorantly in unbelief uh, earned him mercy. Rather, he was not disqualified from God's mercy. He was shown mercy. Why? Because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. What does that mean? I'm going to take a moment to talk about this because it's actually a very important principle here. The book of Numbers actually explains this. It mentions unintentional and intentional sins. And unintentional sins are sins done in ignorance. You sin and don't even realize or recognize that you're sinning. Remember Paul said, I would not known, have known covetousness unless the law came and said, you shall not covet was a sin. Sinning in ignorance is sinning um, in, 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 in not knowing that you're sinning. And those sins can be atoned for. God, in his mercy, provided forgiveness of sins, even though you didn't know you were sinning. In Numbers 15, verse 28, this is explained. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. 
Incredible. God is a merciful God. If someone sinned unintentionally, their sin could be atoned for by a sacrificial offering. However, willful disobedience against God triggers his wrath. He does not come offering mercy. He goes on in Numbers 15, verses 30 to 31. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among, from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him." Now, you might be asking, well, why did Paul think that he sinned unintentionally or ignorantly? Didn't he purposely and willfully uh, travel around the world to punish people? Didn't he purposely compel people to blaspheme? How could he say he did this unintentionally? Here's why. Paul honestly thought that he was serving God. He thought that what he was doing was pleasing God. He thought that what he was doing was exactly what God would want him to do. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was raised to understand the law. He knew it well. He knew and believed the Messiah would come. He just didn't believe it was Jesus. And so he thought the way was a false messianic sect that he was trying to do away with. No, he's trying to protect the law. He was trying to glorify God. So sins that he committed against God's people, he says, well, I did it ignorantly in unbelief, in unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah, but ignorant of the fact that he was sinning against God. He was not knowingly defying God. He thought he was serving him. And this brings up a very important point. For those who do believe in God, and do know his commandments, and do know his law, and they knowingly and willfully defy his commands. They incur God's wrath. There are very, very strong warnings in Scripture. We read many of them in Hebrews, didn't we? About those people who, after receiving the truth, and they understand the truth, and they know the truth, choose to reject God. I'll just give you one of them to remind you in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame." You must be very, very careful. You fall into that category, you are, um, you are in a dangerous, dangerous place. Paul was not there. For, for those who are ignorant or misguided even, God is merciful. And that was seen in the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood, they were men. And the sacrifices they offered, they offered for themselves and they offered for others. In Hebrews 5, 2, it says this about the human priests. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and even going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. See, the, the Levitical priests weren't perfect, were they? They were still sinners. That's why they offered sacrifices for themselves. And he could offer that for others who were ignorant of the sins they were committing or even going astray. There's 
temporary forgiveness for sins done in ignorance then. You know what this says about millions of people in the world caught up in false religions? Do you think there's hope for them? You bet. You guys are just misguided. They're deceived. They're being led astray. God's mercy is available to even them. When Paul came to the city of Athens, amazing example, he could see that they, they were religious people. He walked around the city. He saw all the signs of that. They were just misguided in their religion. And so he tried to guide them to the true God. And in Acts 17, verses 22 to 23, this is what he said. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, <laughs> him I proclaim to you. The one you don't know, hey, I know him. Let me tell you about him. That was Paul. That was Paul. He wanted to make known the God that they didn't know. And people in false religions, they're not beyond the mercy and grace of God. Praise the Lord. Paul, he considered himself a blasphemer. He considered himself a persecutor and an insolent man, and he obtained mercy. Remember, mercy is not getting what you deserve. What did he deserve? Judgment, punishment, but instead he was shown mercy. And Christ met him on that road to Damascus, and he was, uh, he was on his way to carry out persecution. He was going to Damascus to continue to persecute Christ, and he was shown mercy. And then he showed him grace by putting him into the ministry as well. Remember, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Punishment was withheld, and something even greater was giving to, given to him. You know what? In addition to this, I'm going to count you faithful. I'm going to put you into ministry, and you are going to serve me. And that's exactly what Jesus told him. You're going to serve me. That's what you're going to do. And so this is why Paul mentions this grace as being abundant grace, which is the second point here on grace, abundant grace, in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is actually the only place the word grace shows up, as I mentioned it earlier. But it's really all about grace. But it's not just grace, and it's not just abundant grace, but it is exceedingly abundant grace. <laughs> I love how Paul likes to do this. It's hooper play anazo, to overflow with grace, to possess an excess or superabundance. Paul liked to do this with words. He liked to take ordinary words, play anazo for abundant, and then add hooper in front of it <laughs> to give it even more punch. It's not just abundance, it's superabundance. I think he made these words up. It's Hooper Pleonazzo. There was a painting of Niagara Falls that was um, donated to, to an art gallery, but it had no title on it. And so the art gallery came up with a title for it, and it just put these, these three words on it, more to follow. And Niagara Falls has been pouring gallons of water over the edge for centuries, and there's just always more to follow. What a perfect picture of God's exceedingly abundant grace. When you have grace, guess what? There's just more to follow. It's not going to ever get to the end of grace. It's not, oh, grace was all used up. Sorry, if I had gotten you earlier, it would have been... No, it's always available. The sins of man may be great, and they are, but God's grace, it's greater. And Paul makes that point in Romans 5 
verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. We looked at that, didn't we? That's why the law came, to make us aware that we are actually offense, offending God. And then, then the offense, it abounds because we want to offend God even more. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, grace not only overcomes our sins, but it instills within us something that's visible. You know when you meet a person who has experienced God's grace. You know it, don't you? Don't you see it? You can go all the way around the world and run to people and go, there's a believer. They've experienced God's grace. I mean, Reese hit on a point of like a joy, right? A joy should be a part. Gratitude should be a part of that. But here he gives us what it, what it is. There's, there's something about this exceedingly abundantly, abundant grace that, that, that brings about something within us. And what is it? Because the evidence of it is faith and love. That's what he says here. With faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. When grace abounds and the sinning person is shown mercy and grace, then faith and love come in and they abound. Remember, Paul's heart was a heart of unbelief. That's what he said. And it was then filled with faith. His heart was a heart of hatred toward those who persecuted the way, and it was filled with love. Faith and love replaced unbelief and hate. That's visible evidence of God's grace. Paul was not the same man you saw earlier. He was no longer the persecutor and the uh, arrogant, violent aggressor. And so this faith is even greater as it's a saving grace. Yes, it's an abundant grace, but it's also a saving grace. And look at verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, this is the first of five faithful sayings, that phrase, faithful sayings. Actually, Paul is going to say that several times. It's unique to the pastoral epistles. So, Three times we're going to come across that here in in this book, but we'll also see it in 2 Timothy. We'll also see it in Titus. Faithful sayings. What were the faithful uh, sayings? Well, what he means that they're trustworthy statements. By this time, there were several recognized summaries of key doctrines that were uh, traveling around between the churches, And, and people would have known them, and that's why he says it's worthy of all acceptance. You've heard this. It's a faithful saying, a trustworthy statement. He's quoting it. It was common knowledge. And this faithful saying is carefully constructed. It's a condensed articulation of the gospel. And in the Greek, it's just eight words. It's amazing. Look at it. He begins this with Christ Jesus. Now, Paul likes to do that word order a lot particularly in the pastoral epistles. It's his preferred word order. Not Jesus Christ, but Christ Jesus. What's Christ? That's the anointed king. He's the Messiah. And he says, this is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king, and his name is Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world. Notice what this implies, not only the incarnation, but also his pre-existence. Notice he didn't say Christ came into existence He didn't say Christ was created because he existed somewhere else, didn't he? Before he came into the world. The Gospel of John uses the same phraseology as well, pre-existed. 
And he came into the world, and the world is humanity. The world is the world of sinners. And he came into the world to save sinners. There it is. There's the gospel. It's Christ Jesus who existed but came into our world. Why? To save us, to save sinners. That's the message of the gospel. The message the angel gave to Joseph, Mary's husband, was the same. In Matthew 1.21, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay? He's coming into the world. You better name him Jesus, because he's the one. He's the Messiah, and he is going to save people from their sins. Amazing. You know, we know John 3.16 very well, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3.17 goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But, to, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did he not come into the world to condemn it? It already stood condemned. Read Romans 1. God had already condemned the world. The unrighteousness of man already provoked God's wrath. That's why Jesus came in to save. So he came to save sinners. And Paul gives us this trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And look what he adds, of whom I am chief. Protos, first, foremost. If you have an NIV, it says the worst. He came to save sinners, and I'm the worst one. He saw himself as the worst. He really did. Because he mentioned this several times in other places. In Ephesians 3.8, he considered himself the least of all the saints. Look at what he says. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of, of Christ. I, I'm not even the least among the saints. I'm less than the least among the saints. I mean, Paul really had this picture of himself, didn't he? He just couldn't believe that God's grace would extend to him as he was the least of all the saints. But he saw God's purpose in it, sending him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But he never saw himself deserving it. This is what I want you to see. He never saw, well, that makes sense. <laughs> you know? I mean, Jesus did see this in me. No, it made no sense to him at all. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In fact, he just thought, I, people should not even refer to me as an apostle. I persecuted the church. How could that even be? It doesn't matter. He received mercy. He received grace. Jesus Christ himself gave him this undeserving grace. That's the wonderful thing about grace. We don't deserve it. And Paul says, I am chief. Do you notice he said, I am chief, not I was? We, we, we are forgiven of sins. Paul was forgiven of his sins completely, fully. His sins were taken away as, as far as the east is from the west, and that is the case for you, past, present, future. But I think what Paul communicates here is actually a very healthy, regenerate heart. I do think sometimes we do tend to get a little prideful. I hear it a lot in Christian circles at how we look at sinners in the world. I just cannot believe all these Muslims that are pouring into the UK and bringing their this and that into the UK. And I just think, aren't they lost? Aren't they misguided? And you don't even have to go anywhere. God's bringing them to you while you sit on your sofa. Like, what do you, really? They need the gospel. And we tend to go like, oh, 
I am so... We're not. I am chief. He knew he was forgiven. He knew he was no longer seen as a sinner, but he saw himself as just undeserving of God's grace. And you know what that does? It guards our hearts against feelings of superiority. You are not a recipient of God's grace because of anything you did at all. Nothing. And you are not holier than anyone else, and neither am I. I would love to stand here and say, and I am the least. I can't believe, as I was thinking of this this morning, why God would put me into the ministry. The time that he did, I was not a devout follower of Christ. My wife could tell you. <laughs> don't, don't go ask, but I mean, you know, for the details at least, you know. Um, I was dabbling with this stuff. I was still very much involved in, in sinful activities in life. And I look at that and go, what? what? He, all I can do is echo Paul. He, he counted me faithful. He said, you're going to be my man. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. It's nothing I've done. I had no education, no understanding, didn't even read the Bible. To see yourself as a sinner, undeserving of God's grace, is actually the place we need to be, thankful for His grace. Hmm. We're not among the redeemed because we, we earned it. We have not. That's the purpose of Christ coming to the world, <laughs> to save sinners. And Paul says, I'm the worst of the lot. So why save a chief sinner like Paul? And that's the question Paul asks and answers here in verse 16. We'll start wrapping up here. Verse 16, however, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So here is an example of grace. We have the elements of grace. And now the example of grace. Paul is the example of grace. Grace and mercy were extended to Paul so that he might be um, a pattern, it says. That word means an example. He is an example of the power of God's grace to redeem a man like him, uh, but it's also an example, as he puts it, of the long-suffering of Christ. Did you notice that word there? So that I, they, I might show all long-suffering of Christ. Makroth umiah is long-suffering, and it's just the patience of Christ. Well, who is he patient with? What's he patient with? He's patient with you, with people. He's patient with me. He was patient with Paul. If he weren't, none of us would be saved. Would we? Romans 2, 4 speaks of God's patience. It says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance it's the riches of his, his goodness, his forbearance, which is his tolerance of sin. Don't you look around the world and go, what is God waiting for? He's tolerant of it. Why? Why is he doing it? Because he's also patient, patiently waiting for more to be saved. And sometimes I think we forget there's more to be saved. And aren't you glad that God extended his patience and long-suffering for you? Yeah. <laughs> right? What about the people before you? Like, like, well, God, just come today. And what about the people who were saved after that? Well, I'm so glad he didn't. <laughs> Thank you for the long suffering and patience. Think of some of the worst sinners you've ever heard of who have received God's grace and mercy. Paul thinks he is a good example of that. I'm the worst because he was a persecutor of the church. But he became God's, God's servant. If Jesus was patient and gracious enough to save Paul, then he can be patient and gracious enough to save anyone. 
Paul was granted mercy and grace because it's an example. Example for those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. There are many examples of that in life. You know who I thought of this week? I thought of John Newton. He was a slave trader, and he was a, a master on a slave, a captain on a slave ship. Um, and he, he knew how to treat men and women vilely. He perfected how to whip them in a way that would cause the most injury. And as you probably know, he came to faith in Christ and eventually became an abolitionist. He wrote the most well-known gospel hymn, The World Knows Amazing Grace. He could certainly look at God's grace as amazing because he recognized that he had been forgiven much. That's why he called it Amazing Grace. There was a movie called Amazing Grace about the abolitionist movement in Britain to end slave trading. And Albert Finney plays John Newton in it. And this is a quote from the movie. So it's not, I'm not saying this is something John Newton actually said. It's from the movie, but it's amazing. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. And I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And although my memory is fading, I remember the thing, two things very, very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Isn't that amazing? His receiving God's grace was an amazing thing to him, and he expounded it in his song. Paul receiving God's grace led to him to, to, to sing a song of praise. We call it a doxology, and that's what it ends with, a doxology. It's an exaltation of grace, a praise of grace, or the giver of grace in verse 17, and we'll end with this. Look at it. It says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul began with thanksgiving and he ends with praise, with a doxology. And when you look at grace with real hearts of gratitude, it will lead you to this proper place of grace. I knew I'd be teaching on this this week and I was just trying to focus as much as I could on this amazing thing that God has given me called grace. And Paul, he's been highlighting the work of God in here, hasn't he? His mercy, his grace, his long-suffering. But here now he just praises God for who he is, the king eternal. It literally means the king of ages because the Jewish thought was that there were two ages, the present age and the age to come. He is the king of both. He's the king of ages because he's the beginning and the end. He's immortal. He's not subject to decay. He's not uh, incorruptible. He's, he's imperishable, I mean. He's incorruptible. He, he, he will not fade away. He's here forever, and he's invisible. For us to know this God, he must reveal himself to us. I can't point you to God and say, there's God. And he doesn't come and go, here I am. But he does reveal himself to you, doesn't he? Haven't you seen him? Don't you know him? I do. He, he, he lives and dwells in unapproachable light, and no man has seen or can see him, but we have seen him because we've experienced his grace, and he is the only God, the monotheo. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other, and he alone is wise. And Paul praises him for that, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, he says and his ways past finding out. And because those things are true of him, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
Does the fact that you are a recipient of God's grace bring you to praise Him? It should. For John Newton, his own praise of God has been handed down to us for centuries. We've joined him in the praise, singing the song, the words to Amazing Grace. So many people sing the song, music, pop stars, that, who, who have no idea what it's about. But we certainly do. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Oh, I love this line. How precious, how precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. I would say the second. Are you thankful for grace? Praise him for it today. Let me pray. God, we are grateful for your grace to us today. Lord, may you forgive our prideful hearts for times when we take it for granted, when we look down our noses at those mired in sinful lifestyles. We were there. I was there. I didn't pull myself out of it. You saved me. You came into the world to save the sinners. I'm so glad you did. It is amazing grace that we praise you for today. And may it always remain amazing to us. May we never forget it. Thank you that today was communion providentially, that we would remember the grace that you brought us. You are an amazing God, and thank you for your amazing grace. Amen. Church, before-